So I've been doing this kind of introduction each time uh, before the sermon in, the, in this series in 1 Samuel. There's just so much narrative and things to catch up on. Uh, I've mentioned how this story in 1 Samuel takes place right at the end of, of the book of Judges, like that kind of time period in biblical history. How the nation was in upheaval, how there was no king in the land and people kind of did whatever they want to. Throughout the book of Judges, the people rebel against God and turn to idolatry. Then they're conquered by foreign powers. They cry out to God, and he sends rescuers called judges to deliver them. Rescuers like Deborah and Gideon and Samson and Jephthah. Judges sort of follows this cycle of national sin and then trouble and then God's deliverance and then a season of peace until there's sin again, and they turn back to idolatry. It's this horrible cycle um, in Judges. You read it sometime. It's really like the X-rated book of the Bible. It is telling, though, how the book of Judges ends. It ends with one of the most horrible stories in all of the Bible. If it were turned into a film, our rating wouldn't cover it. It's much worse than that. It makes the story of Sodom and Gomorrah look tame. In this story, a man has a concubine, which is a word for a second wife uh, in his family. She was unfaithful to him and ran away, so he goes on a journey to find her and brings her home. He travels long and far after he gets her and is on his way home, and he realizes he needs to stop for the night. And so he considers one of two towns to stop in. One town is called Ramah, the other town is called Gibeah. Now, I hope you know by now, if I'm giving all this background information, it's not because I need filler for my sermons, okay? It's because I want you to be on fire for the Bible. I want you to be Bible detectives, and I know we've got our, uh, our youth with us today as well. I want you guys to be thinking, especially with your Bible sleuth hats on, because all of these stories throughout Scripture are interrelated. They use common metaphors that we hear over and over again. You've heard me ask time and time again, where have we heard that before? So I want you to pay attention because all of these things will add meaning and depth to the story we're finally going to look at today. So I'm going to, to, I'm going to say this one more time. Here are the place names, and you can write them down if you want to. They had to choose between staying the night in Ramah, R-A-M-A-H, Ramah, or Gibeah, G-I-B-E-A-H. All right, sleuths, remember those names. Gibeah is the town that they chose, and it's a town occupied by the Benjamites, who are from the tribe of Benjamin, just in case you didn't know that. There they are met by a kind man in the courtyard of the city, who warns them, do not spend the night in the courtyard, but come to my house, and I will show you hospitality. So he tries to do this good thing, but in the middle of the night, Men from the city come and bang on the door and say, we want your guest. We want to have relations with him. Now, this man who has his concubine is in trouble, and he's a coward. And so he throws his concubine out the door, and these men do their worst, and in the morning, they find this woman is dead. 
Believe it or not, that's not even the worst part of the story. But the point is that the Benjamites from Gibeah do this horrible thing. And the other tribes of Israel confront them about it. And they don't repent. And they go to war. And the the other tribes of Israel basically annihilate Benjamin. Only a few hundred people survive from this onslaught. And you can see the trouble, right, with the end of Judges. The people of God, Israel, who God chose to be a light to the nations, are committing genocide, horrible atrocities against their own people. They do whatever's right in their own eyes, and there's no king in the land to coalesce them. In these darkest days, the stage is set for either total destruction of Israel or a movement of God. Only one of those two outcomes is likely to happen. And the book of Samuel, the one that we're walking through as a church, is the book that records God's response to this problem. It is an essential part of the story of God's salvation acts to Israel and to the world. And when God rescues a people, he uses people. He works in and through other people to rescue people. Now, in a nation of disarray, if you were to ask at this time, who is the lowest tribe on earth? What would you say? Benjamin. And if you were to say, if you were to guess which uh, tribe a savior would come out of, you would probably say any tribe but, okay, I've just put the ball on the tee. Tim, little, yep, let's tee off, let's tee off. Uh, We're going to walk through the text, and I'm going to read the first 14 verses of 1 Samuel chapter 9. Now there was a, a man of Benjamin, whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bekorah, the son of Aphiah, the son of a Benjamite, a mighty man of valor. He had a son whose name was Saul, a choice and handsome man. And there was not a more handsome person than he among the sons of Israel. From his shoulders and up, he was taller than all the other people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to his son Saul, Take now, you one of the servants, arise and go search for the donkeys. He passed through the hill country of Ephraim, passed through the land of Shalishah, uh, but they did not find them. And then they passed through the land of Sha'alim, but they weren't there either. I thought for sure they'd be in Sha'alim, didn't you? Anyway, so he passes through the land of the Benjamites, but he did not find them. And when they came to the land of Zuf, Saul says to his servant who was with him, come, let us return or else my father will cease to be concerned about the donkeys and begin to be anxious for us. And he said to him, behold now, there's a man of God in this city and the man is held in honor. All that he says surely comes true. Let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us about our journey on which we've set out. Then Saul said to his servant, But behold, if we go, what shall we bring the man of God? For the bread is gone from our sack, and there's no present to bring the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again and said, Behold, I have in my hand a fourth of a shekel of silver. I will give it to the man of God, and he will tell us our way. Formerly, 
Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he used to say, come, let us see the seer, for he who is called a prophet now was formerly called a seer. Then Saul said to his servant, well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. And they went up to the slope to the city, and they found young women going out to gather water. And they said to them, is the seer here? They answered and said, he is. See, he's ahead of you. Hurry now, for he has come into the city today, for the people have a sacrifice on the high place today. As soon as you enter the city, you will find, <clears throat> you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat until he comes, because he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now, go up and you'll find him. So they went up to the city, and as they came into the city, behold, Samuel was coming out toward them to go up to the high place. The people want a king so that they can be like the nations. But God gives them someone better than they were asking for. Saul is not arrogant. He's not from a dynasty. He's a nice boy from a good family. His dad, Kish, is described as a valiant man. And he's an obedient son who goes to look after his father's donkeys. That's one side of the story. The other side is that there's this ominous, something ain't quite right about this. What tribe is he from? Benjamin. In chapter 10, which is part of my sermon too, we learn that he's not just from Benjamin, he's from Gibeah. Interesting. Second thing is, he's not too sharp, is he? He's there, he's out, I mean, he's a nice boy, he's looking for his father's donkeys, but he doesn't come up with the idea to, to search out the man of God, it's his servant who has this idea. And even after the idea is presented, he doesn't know how he's going to win over the man of God. Again, it's the servant who has the right idea. So they look and they find Samuel. Does anyone remember where Samuel is from? Gibeah and Ramah. Samuel's from Ramah. Ah, this is all fun. Now it goes together. So they go to a, up to a well and there, there's, there's women there and they're getting water. Have you ever heard a story like that before where women are getting water at a well? That's called a type scene. And in the Bible... When a main male character goes to a well and there's women drawing water there, what happens? Gets a wife. Isaac and Rebecca, Jacob and Rachel, Moses and Zipporah. To an ancient reader, you know what is supposed to happen in a story like this. He's supposed to find his wife here. The fact that he does not find a wife, it's called a broken type scene or a broken well story, tips us off to something is not quite right with this man and this narrative. Something is going sideways, right? Bible sleuths. And then these women tell him to wait for Samuel because, or, or, or that the people are going to wait for Samuel because they won't eat until he blesses the meal. Now, just later on, if you've read ahead, you'll know that Saul gets in a situation where he's supposed to wait for Samuel to bless the sacrifice, and oh, dun, 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 what will he do? All right. 
The jury is out on Saul. On the one hand, he's this nice kid who looks obedient and handsome and strong and valiant. On the other hand, we have these ominous warnings in the subtext. The jury is out. What will become of this new character? All right, let's continue the story. Verses 15 through 21. Now a day before Saul's coming, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel, saying, About this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince or ruler over my people Israel. And he will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have regarded my people because their cry has come to me. You've heard things like this before, right? A little Exodus motif going on. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, Behold, the man whom I spoke to you, this one shall rule over my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Please tell me where the seer's house is. Samuel answered Saul and said, I'm the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for you shall eat with me today. And in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys, which were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and your father's household? Saul replied, am I not a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel and my family the least of the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then do you speak to me in this way? Then Samuel took Saul and his servant and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who were invited, who were about 30 men. Samuel said to the cook, bring the portion that I gave you concerning which I said, set it aside. Then the cook took the leg, that's the best part, and they uh, they gave it to him at the seat of honor. And Samuel said, Here is what has been reserved. Set it before you and eat, because it has been kept for you until the appointed time. Since I said I have invited the people, so Saul ate with Samuel that day. Now we know that none of this is coincidental. The Lord has superintended this scene. Like so much in life, it's, a, it's as though a greater hand is guiding our most significant steps. Notice that Saul nor Samuel are doing anything particularly religious. They are doing their daily duties. Well, Samuel's kind of a religious dude, so he's doing his regular stuff. And Saul is out looking for his father's donkeys. They're just doing life. You remember, the same was true of Moses. He was shepherding his father-in-law's flock, just doing his duty. He wasn't going to temple or anything like that. And all of a sudden, he encounters the burning bush. And God gives him this mission to deliver the people from slavery. Well, here, the obedient son, Saul, was merely looking for the lost donkeys of his father, and only to find out that he has been chosen by God to deliver his people from the Philistines. This is a, a trippy situation. Now, what is Saul chosen for? God tells Samuel that he has chosen Saul to be king? No, not quite. The Hebrew word for king is melech. Can you say melech? You said king. But here and wherever God, Samuel, 
or the narrator refer to Saul, they don't use the term melech. They use the term nagid. Say nagid. Nagid means something like commander or prince or ruler or overseer. It is not the same as a melech. He's not anointing Saul to be king, but commander or ruler. And here's the idea. The idea is that God is retaining the title king for himself. But he's raising up Saul as a deliverer who will be his representative on earth. And the text says two things that highlight Saul's position. First, he's anointed by Samuel. Anointing was the act of setting someone apart for sacred service. It authorizes them for, uh, for service. And so Saul would be God's anointed, authorized agent to rule over Israel for God, who is the real king. Second, he was raised up to deliver God's people from the Philistines. In other words, God raised up Saul as an act of salvation. Just as he raised up Moses to deliver the people from Egypt, so he raises up Saul to deliver them from the Philistines. Which means, again, just to reiterate this, that God's actions in history are saving actions in history. He raises these people up to save people. Saul is an imposing, handsome figure, standing a good head taller uh, above most other men. Must be like Marcus Worland or Tommy or Ryan or something. Dead sexy. He's fully aware that he's from the tribe of Benjamin, which is why he is surprised that God would choose him at all to lead the people and to deliver them from the Philistines. He's humbled. He's blown away. Don't you know who I am? I'm just Saul from Benjamin, the lowest dude of the lowest tribe of the... And you're sitting me at the, the seat of honor. When God equips someone, or when God calls someone, he equips them. When he calls, he provides. I just want to pause and ask you, what has God chosen you for? What has he called you into vocationally as a representative of the king? Do you sometimes disqualify yourself before you even let God work in and through you? Maybe you discount yourself because you're not good enough. Or we've got our youth with us. Maybe you discount yourself because you're not old enough. Or we've got some retirees in our congregation. Maybe you discount yourself because you think you're too old. Do you, do you think of yourself as someone, I don't know enough about the Bible, I can't be useful, or I've made too many mistakes in my past, I'm disqualified. Abraham, Jacob, Judah, Moses, and Saul, David, Peter, and Paul, they all stand as counterpoints to the, the disqualifying tapes that go off in our head. They are all people who on the outside should have been very disqualified. I don't know this for sure, but I am guessing there's no murderers in here. That was like half the list of dudes I just mentioned are murderers. And they ended up working as agents of the Lord. You know, it's those who are humble, obedient, repentant, 
and dependent on God, those are the ones who end up doing great things. You don't need a high IQ to be humble. You don't need strength to be obedient. You don't need to be, the, you don't need to be right to be repentant. And you don't need to be spotlessly moral to be dependent on God through faith in Jesus, which is such good news because that, doesn't, that means like nobody's disqualified. Your IQ has nothing to do with it. Your physical stature has nothing to do with it. Your spotless record has nothing to do with it. If you can say, God, I need you, you can, you can be an agent of God that's quite effective in the world. That's awesome. All right, back to the story. Samuel takes Saul to this banquet that seems to have been prepared in advance uh, for his honor. There's 30 people there. The cook has prepared the best cut of meat for Saul, and he's placed at the seat of honor. And after this feast, they head down from the holy hill, and Samuel has some one-on-one time with Saul. And this is what happened. Chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. So Samuel took a flask of oil, poured it on his head, Saul's head, kissed him and said, has not the Lord anointed you a ruler, a nagid, over his inheritance? When you go from me today, then you will find two men close to Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zalah, or Zelzah. They will say to you, the donkeys which you went to look for have been found. Now behold, your father has ceased to be concerned about the donkeys and is anxious for you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you will go on further from there, and you will come as far as the oak of Tabor. And there three men are going up to God at Bethel, who will meet you, one carrying three goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, another carrying a jug of wine, and they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you will accept from their hand. Yes, sir. Afterward, you will come to the hill of God where the Philistine garrison is, and it shall be that as you have come there to this city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with a harp and tambourine and flute and lyra, and they will be prophesying. Okay, now check this out. The spirit of the Lord will come upon you mightily, and you shall prophesy with them and be changed into another man. It shall be, when these signs come to you, do for yourself whatever the occasion requires. God is with you. And you shall go down before me to Gilgal. And behold, I will come to you and offer a burnt offering and sacrifice and peace offerings. You shall wait seven days until I come to you and show you what you should do. Then it happened that when he turned back to leave Samuel, God changed his heart. And all those signs came about on that day. And when they came to the hill, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God came mightily on him, so that he prophesied among them. And it came about, when all who knew him previously saw that he prophesied now with the prophets, that the people said to one another, what has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? A man there said, now who is his father? Therefore it became a proverb. Is Saul also among the prophets? And when he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Saul is anointed, set apart. He's declared a nagid, a ruler over Israel. And then Saul is given three signs by Samuel 
three very specific signs, right? Like this dude has this much bread and jug of wine, and this is exactly what they're going to say. Why do you think that is? Well, what if you were just walking down the street and God said, Marsha, I'm setting you aside to rule my people, and you're going to deliver them from whatever. What? Okay, you have your moment, and then you walk home, and it's like, how do I know that that really happened? How do I know that that is, that Samuel even knows what he's talking about? So these signs are there to to help Saul get the fact that Samuel's words come true every time. There's two simple signs, and then there's this third sign that is significant. It's the sign about becoming a new person. Let me read the quote again. Then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you mightily, and you shall prophesy with them and be changed into another man. Sure enough, two verses later, the narrator narrator writes, then it happened when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God changed his heart, and all those signs came about on that day. God equips those he calls. See, up until this point, we are led to believe that Saul has been called to lead God's people as God's representative, and to be the agent through whom God will deliver Israel from the Philistines. That's all true, and that would be a big enough vocation if that's it, but it's much, much bigger than that. I want you to put your Bible detective hats back on and listen to these verses again. It shall be, when these signs come to you, do for yourself on that occasion, or do for yourself whatever you want, whatever the occasion requires. God is with you. Do whatever you want. You're a new person. Do whatever you want. God is with you. In the next sentence, it says, you shall wait seven days until I come to you and show you what to do. Do whatever you want. Wait seven days. I'll come to you and show you what you should do. In one sentence, Samuel gives Saul freedom to do whatever he wants in his newness. But in the next sentence, Samuel gives clear boundaries to Saul. Does that remind you of any other, any other text in the Bible that may have come before this one? Maybe there's a tree involved in it. Any cohort kids that think of a tree that weren't supposed to eat from? Yeah. You can eat from any tree in this garden. You're free. You're my child. Enjoy it. I created you to enjoy all of this. There's just one out of the many, there's just one, one boundary. Don't touch this one. It will ruin you. It will ruin everything. It's Eden. In Eden, our ancestors had freedom to exercise their creative will any way they wanted except eating the tree that represented independence from God. That's exactly what they did, and we've been broken ever since. But God is a God of new beginnings. And after Eden, he worked through Seth and his line. And after the flood, God worked through a new creation. 
After the fall of Babel, God chose to start again through Abraham. And after the fall of Israel in the book of Judges, God has raised up Samuel from the the womb of barren Hannah and Saul from the lost tribe of Benjamin. God is a God of new beginnings, of new starts. God is literally providing an opportunity to undo the curse of Eden. Salvation is more than deliverance from Philistines or whatever external troubles we have in our current moment. True salvation includes rescue from sin itself. It takes a new start. And in order to start again, it will take a humanity with new hearts. And so he gives Israel's first commander, first Nagid, first ruler, who they're going to call king, he gives this man a new heart. Saul ends up having a spectacular experience with the Spirit of God. He's taken up and given the gift of prophecy in that moment, and he prophesies with the the prophets of God. But you know, his experience is kind of private. They're up on this holy hill. They're singing and dancing and working themselves up to a frenzy, and he's taken up in the Spirit, given a new heart, called a new man. But there's just a few of them there. Have you ever had a significant spiritual experience, maybe at camp or on a mission trip or some other unique setting? It feels amazing. It feels like you have had a taste of what life with Christ is supposed to be like. It feels like you are so close with Jesus that you just never want to leave that moment. But then you go home or you go back to work you go back to school. You get back into the daily grind of interacting with other people doing the daily grind. And it is a lot harder to live as a new person in the real world than it is in the shelter of a camp or on a mission trip or on a retreat or even at a church service. Saul had a similar experience. His life had been turned upside down for the better. He had personal experience with the Spirit of God, and he got a new heart. But when he got back to his hometown, people were questioning the validity of his experience. And when they wanted to make him king, he started to have doubts, hiding himself in the luggage cart while people are saying, we want, we're, we're Saul, we want to make him king. New beginnings and even new hearts are just that, they're new. They are not automatic. The next chapters of 1 Samuel will tell how the story of Saul unfolds. We'll save that conversation for next week. But for now, I want to camp out on the fact that God desires to make us new. That through Christ, he wants to give us new hearts that are full of love. He wants to make you and I new creations. In fact, when we come to place our faith in Jesus, that's exactly what we are, new creations in Christ. The question is, will you and I live into that new identity? Will we receive the gift that God gives us? Will we allow Jesus to undo the curse of Eden in our hearts so we can live the life that we're meant to live? It's not a journey for the faint of heart. Becoming a new creation is the work that Jesus does, but it involves us unmasking the false self, 
dying to the old way that we used to relate to the world with our power plays and our insecurities, our falseness. All who follow Jesus are on that journey. We all are on that journey if we're following Jesus. Some might be further than others. Some may have stalled out and feel like you're going backwards. It's a journey of sacrifices and joy, of facing fears and finding freedom. The story of Saul and his newness in the power of God's Spirit is a foreshadowing of everything that will be available in Christ, the age that you and I get to live in. See, unlike Saul and the people before the Spirit, uh, the age of the Spirit, in Christ, you and I have been made new. The scripture reading that Meg read earlier from Colossians 3, 1 through 17, encourages us to put on the new self, which, of course, Jesus makes possible through the Spirit. One person who I've asked to share is Emily Frazier. Um, Emily, come on up. She, she's been on this journey um, and we know Emily. She's our sister. She's not perfect. It's partly why I asked you to come up. I mean that in the most loving way. <laughs> but I have noticed that unlike Saul, spoiler alert of what's going to happen with Saul, a man who stopped pursuing once he got the new start, Emily has been fighting the good fight. And I've asked her to share a bit of a story about how God is making her new and how it is, Emily, that you are tapping into his grace. So I'll let you uh, take it. I think that should work. Yeah, is this on now? Yeah, I think officially it was, how am I cooperating with God's grace to allow his healing and power for change to make me new? whoa, <laughs> kind of a big question. Um, but what I love from that Colossians 3, it talks about setting our hearts to Christ and setting our minds to Christ. And for me, it's always been very easy to set my mind on Christ. Um, I can operate out of my head. I've been very successfully doing this for most of my life. Um, but unfortunately, acquiring knowledge and loving God with my mind didn't bring transformation to my heart didn't bring freedom. And I just had this disconnect. I felt really dead inside. And I loved the, God just spoke to me through the healing, the raising of Lazarus. You know, he's been dead for a while. His sister's like, ugh, it's gonna be gross in there, Jesus. Like, don't open the tomb. And it just was God speaking to me that nothing is too dead. There's nothing too, like, rotten in our lives for God to bring new life and healing to. So that was a way that he spoke and, and brought my life, gave me that new flesh heart and took away that stone heart. Um, and he's connecting my heart and my head. That's a big way of that he's bringing new life to me is being connected. Because when your heart's been shut down for a really long time and you're used to living in your head, it's really difficult to know how to respond, right, for me. Like it's really easy for me to react to situations rather than to thoughtfully respond and not let my emotions control me. So the, the good end of being open and my heart being made new is I've been able to receive Jesus' love in a really deep way um, in some, some woundings and some hurt places, but it also can feel really out of control. <laughs> um, I feel like my emotions can often control me instead of letting Christ um, dwell in my heart. Living 
out of my heart also means experiencing a lot of pain and rejection. Because um, you have to take the good with the bad, right? Um, this is an awesome place where Jesus has been meeting me because instead of shutting that down or seeking my own comforts, I'm learning to really seek my comfort in Jesus and experience the ever-present Holy Spirit with me. Giving up those false comforts, things as simple as cruising the internet or sitting down to Netflix, you know, eating or enjoying maybe one too many glasses of wine. There's all, we have our own ways that we tune out and turn off our hearts. Um, so the new life of really letting Jesus comfort me and that he knows my needs and he knows my heart and knows how to meet those needs. He's helping me to stay engaged and that's a way that he's connected my head and my heart. But this is, takes continual practice, as Chris said. I can have a time of feeling like super connected to God. Maybe you can relate where you have like this awesome quiet time or you're in prayer and you really feel like God's speaking to you. Um, or for me, maybe listening and worshiping God through music. And I'm like, oh, this is awesome. And then I come like literally like not even minutes later and I'm like grumbling and super annoyed with Eric or I'm already like yelling at the kids. And while the enemy wants me to feel like, oh, you're such an imposter, like that was a false experience with God or you're not really listening to him. Um, Jesus is just reminding me, no, like you desperately need to stay with me. <laughs> it's um, a reminder that I need to reconnect with Jesus on a continual basis. I think that's, you know, part of what Paul talks about when he's talking about praying continually. I continually need to turn to the Lord. I need to hear that truth that I'm his treasure. I'm not a wretch. I'm his, he's, I'm his treasure. And so I'm, I'm a practicing that abiding in Jesus, that continual confession, repentance, prayer, and worship. Worship, to me, has been really transformative in living into this new heart and practicing really the presence of God. And I think it's, yeah, it's easy to feel authentic than when I'm impatient the next moment. But it's just evidence of how deep I need to abide in him and practice those habits that change me. Because the right thinking doesn't change my heart, but orienting my heart to the Lord is what changes me. And it lets me sit in his love, that he knows me and he loves me. In that Colossians reading, I'm his holy and beloved child. Appreciate your vulnerability and sharing your heart with us. That's a that's a journey, and I partly I just wanted someone else besides me. You know, I feel like I get to share my stories all the time, and that's fine. I'm human, but we're all on this journey. Like everyone that you're sitting next to is on a spectrum as well. And um, one of the some of the things I just wanted to highlight is like I, Emily, I appreciate how you said like you've got high moments, and then. I'll throw myself in there too. I'll snap at the kids or I'll snap at Corey over something. I'll have just been praying. You know, you, you know what I'm talking about, right? Please, please know. Um, but I think it's, it's this something that kind of we've coined in our small group over the years. It's the stumbling in the right direction. 
And, and I, I think what you see with Saul is a new start. And then we're going to find him becoming self-sufficient and deaf to God and deaf to his desperate need for God. And as long as we stay attuned to our desperate need for God and stumble in that right direction and put ourselves in positions to pursue him, like you're doing right now, coming to worship, or when you're part of a small group or a spiritual friendship where you're working or you're in counseling or you're in a special group, uh, addiction recovery, um, I love that Emily saw a need for, for more worship teams. She also has a heart for worship, and she said, you know what? I may not be, uh, be able to carry the team by myself, but I will plan, and I will form teams, and I love that you are expressing th that worship heart that you have by building a worship team. So every third Sunday, you'll see Emily up here leading a team of us. Um, because that's, that's one of the ways she's putting herself in line to connect with the living Christ. What are some ways that you and I can put ourselves in position to receive the grace of Christ? He wants to. He's given us new, a new start. He's given us a new heart. How do we let it breathe and grow? That's, uh, that's what I leave you with. We're going to transition now to a time of healing prayer.